Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets podcast. I'm Mark Robinson, filling in for our editor, John Human, who's out and about at the moment. And I'm joined this week by Phil Oakley. And uh, we're going to have a, a very general discussion, uh, but it's related to this week's cover feature, which centers on uh, shorting strategies. Not always the preferred option for retail investors, of course, but there's some very interesting reading in there which can which will help you sort of and your valuation techniques from a conventional basis as well. So we've had another extremely busy week in terms of results. We'll just start running down a couple of those with reference to shorting, or at least where these companies lie at the moment. So good afternoon, Phil. The first company that we were talking about this week would be uh, Debenhams, and there's been a, an update again about Mike Ashley today, who's uh, willing to come back into the market, another cash injection, but but really at the at the moment it's it's pretty much a buyer's market there, I'd have thought. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I struggle really to work out what's going on here because I think Debenhams is essentially just buying time at the moment. We had we've had a fundraising a few weeks ago. I think pretty much to keep the suppliers happy, yeah, to make sure that they can still get the goods in through the door without people worrying that they're not going to get paid. And it's difficult to see with all the debt and the deterioration in trading that's still still happening in this business, how really there isn't any sort of true value left for for, for shareholders. So, what, what do you think? Uh, Where's the end game for Mike Ashley here? Well, obviously, he's invested in the business. He's been invested in this business for a while, and he seems to have his fingers in many pies as far as the high street is concerned. My guess here is that he is trying to protect the money that he's invested in the business already, and that if the business does become insolvent, has to go into administration, that he is in a very influential position to make some kind of hay from from the mess in terms of clearing it up afterwards. Yeah, it, it is very difficult to see uh, any incentive uh, beyond that for him. Uh, but he's he's been in this position uh, before as well. Yeah, I mean, you saw it with, you know, House Fraser. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, you know, he's he's very canny. He's not to be dismissed in terms of what he can get out of it. Yes. I think in terms of our listeners and readers, I'm not sure what they can get out of it. No, no. Um, because, you know, this company has a meaningful amount of debt, but more importantly, it has a very, very expensive rent bill that it has to pay, and the ability of the profits to keep paying that seems to be getting thinner and thinner. Yeah, of course, this is an industry-wide problem. Industry-wide problem, big problem for Debenhams yeah. because they have signed up to very long lease agreements and it would be pretty much impossible for them to buy their way out of that. And they desperately need to get out of quite a lot of locations where it's very, very hard for them to make money. And I think this will be what ultimately sinks this business from from a current shareholders perspective whether it can be sorted out and then resurrect itself in some sort of way is is very possible but i'm not i i can't see a way how a private investor looking at this now is going to make 
going to make money out of it. And I can understand why somebody would still short it. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, um, as I say, it's an industry-wide problem yet, and there doesn't seem to be any clear idea uh, how conventional department stores uh, can compete with the growth of uh, online traffic. Uh, I doubt very much it will be the... uh, the last store chain that we see that will uh, get into this sort of situation. Uh, I agree. Even companies like John Lewis, I think you have to raise question marks on a, you know, say a five-year view. They they are struggling. Yeah. And um, I mean, it would be a big story, and clearly that's, you know, no one really wants, no one wants to see any business go bust. Yep. But these these guys have got a hell of a fight on. Well, I think this is, uh, you know, part of the reason why governments are. Um uh, considering you know, tax measures for for online commerce at the moment as well, there are other reasons as well because uh, the the Amazons of this world are obviously able to uh, negate their tax charge to a, a large degree, and government uh, would be keen to get some of those profits uh, in other manners with a direct sales tax. I, I guess there's another sector that we can have a quick look at as well, which is uh, a suffering a cyclical downturn at the moment, and that's uh, the automotive sector or the the dealership sector we've had a couple of uh, uh, results in this week i i covered uh, lookers earlier on in the week and uh, it seemed to be forming reasonably well but uh, it, it's the usual story we still have the aftermath of the uh, the dieselgate scandal and uh, the, the wltp uh, emission standards which have uh, which have constricted uh, car supply into the uk but uh, I guess the interesting point that I've seen through most of the dealers is that their is that their aftermarket and used car sales seem to be propping them up at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at, uh, at Marshalls mm. uh, as well, and that's and it seems that Lookers and Marshalls there is a a common theme in that the the new market has has come down. Um, but the the used market and the aftermarket is holding up quite well, and in some ways the dealers are going to be quite happy about that because, or reasonably happy, because they make better margins yeah. from selling used cars and from servicing and spare parts. That's that's where their margin comes from. The actual profitability of of uh, of new car sales is is very very thin, apart from the apart from the volume bonuses that they get from. Um, car manufacturers, and I think this is going to stay the way for the next next few years. And I think one of the, one of the things that I've always uh, intrigued me about this sector is that I think the points that you've made about the emissions, the diesel, the delay to the testing—that's certainly not been helpful. But this is a market that's been propped up quite nicely by easy easy credit and, yeah. and the PCP market. And I, I think that for a section of consumers who have been using the PCP market, um, buying a car or running a car via that method is actually unaffordable because it is an incredibly expensive way to uh, to own a car or use a car because you're buying a two three buying a car and holding it for three four years you are incurring huge amounts of depreciation interest on top and that is having to try and do that again and again and again is very expensive and i'm sure that there are there's a certain element of the market 
that can't afford to keep doing that. Well, it's, it's still growing as far, as far as I'm aware. There's alternative means of uh, financing and, uh, and, and leasehold as well. I, I was talking to some people from uh, BCA Marketplace as well, and they, and they said that the combination of the change in financing but also uh, more stringent environmental standards is leading to a, a much higher turnover in it with, uh, with fleets, company fleets. And, again, this has been pretty good for the used car market because, actually, when you're buying a used car nowadays, it, chances are it's going to be a pretty decent uh, motor. I think so. I think the other thing as well is I think this is where the the PCP, I think what's going to happen is that whilst it might not support the new market, I think it will support the used market Yeah. Um, because it's altogether a more attractive proposition. And I think the other thing is, is that there are some actually very, very good cars now on two, three-year-old because the mileage restrictions uh, of driving these from new have come down from, say, 10,000, 12,000 a year to maybe even as low as six, but typically sort of 8,000. So you can be well, buying the, a three-year-old. Certainly the experience of BCA for what they were telling yeah. me, yeah. Yeah, you can be buying a, a three-year-old car with, you know, 20,000 miles on it. Yeah, um, your first car wasn't didn't fall into that bracket. Mine certainly no, didn't. No, ninety thousand, ten years old. Ninety thousand. I had a nineteen sixty seven Toyota Corona, and it was probably about thirteen years old then. So I don't know if it's still on the road. I doubt it very much. Another uh, result this week, we we'll leave car dealers uh, well behind, is uh, Domino's. Now uh, I haven't had a look what's been happening there, but there was a bit of a darling stock there for a while, and uh, but we've got it on a on a sell now. This was, I think, an extremely good business mm. up until a couple of years ago. And um, it's run up against a number of problems. There's been quite a lot of uh, news flow in, in the press over the last six months to a year about the relationship between Domino's and its franchisees. It's a franchise business, and it's reliant on entrepreneurs-type people taking on a domino store and growing it and one of the, there's there's been a degree of conflict in terms of um how much dominoes is making out of out of selling pizzas and how much the franchisees are because yeah. the franchisees have to take on all the costs yeah and if you look at how dominoes makes most of its money it's not from the royalties that are being paid back it's actually selling things like dough and cheese and yep. all the pizza ingredients to them. And they are making big, fat margins on that. And from a franchisee's point of view, they could be making too much money out of that. And one of the big areas of debate over the last few years has been the cheese price. So when the cheese price goes up, the franchisees have to pay Domino's more money. Mozzarella's gone down, though, hasn't it? But when it yeah, but when it comes down do they get it back as quickly as in a lower price and that's that's a big issue when you are a franchisee and you are got to pay for staff you got to pay business rates uh, you got to pay drivers yeah um you know your margins are, are are being squeezed you you would think the opposite would be true though wouldn't you you would think whether firms like that would have bulk buying power uh, and and therefore would be able to pass on those those savings but that hasn't been happening no, domino's has got the, the bulk buying power but they they sell to the franchisees it yeah. is the it is how much the franchisees are paying who who's actually benefiting from the buying power yeah and i think the franchisees think that it's probably dominoes and not them. But there's another there's another issue in terms of the strategy of this company in that 
Domino's as well is actually has the UK master franchise, and that's given to it from the parent company in America. Yes. Now, the parent company wants a growing revenue stream of royalties back to it. And the only way it can do that is for Domino's UK via its franchises to keep opening more shops and selling more pizzas. And this is where I think Domino's has got itself into a bit of a problem. It's got nearly 50% of the takeaway pizza market in the UK. It's got 1,100 stores. It wants to get to 1,600. And it seems to me that the only way that it can do that is is to pursue a strategy which is called splitting ter- territories. And put this in simple terms, give you a very simple example that if there are two shops in a town, you open a third one. And the danger is, is that new third shop starts taking sales from the other two shops. And this mm-hmm. is definitely happening. Okay. And the franchisees, which generally are running probably most of the shops in the town, are seeing their profits get jiggled about a lot and that their 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 existing shops are losing sales and are losing profits in the short term whilst the third third shop might not might be taking a very long time to start justifying the 300,000 pounds that it costs to actually open one of these up and so that that, that suggests there there must be an optimal optimum or optimal amount of stores within the UK or yeah. outlets within the UK? I think there is. I think yeah. there is. I mean, if you've got 50% of the market from 1,100 stores, yeah, I don't think you're going to get another 25% from opening 500. But you see, if you go back to the relationship between the franchise or Domino's and the franchise, they don't care. They make money by selling ingredients. Yeah. But if it comes at trashing the profitability of their franchisees, that's where you've got some friction. And... The whole point about this business is that Domino's, as a company, can only be as strong as long as its franchisees can continue to make good money. Yeah. So you've got these frictions building now, and you have the number of openings, which was running at 95 a couple of years ago, come down to just under 60 last year, and now they say, well, we want to do 60 but we don't know. So there is now a big question mark as how this company can can grow. Because yeah. because if it's if its franchisees are getting unhappy and Domino's is having to compensate them, which it is, then this is a this is a big uh, a big obstacle for to keep on growing. It's an interesting point. I mean, surely we, we must we must have seen this before in different franchises. I would have thought I mean, in, know, the, in the states, McDonald's sure. has always yeah, been yeah. has been in a you know there's always been. A, but they pioneered that whole model. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, fra- franchising with brands. If you look at most of the the, the restaurant trade, or you know the McDonald's, the Burger Kings, the Kentucky Fried Chickens, even you know things like Starbucks, they're essentially a franchise model. Yeah. And it's great for the franchisor because you pass on a lot of the costs of running the restaurants to the franchisee, and then you get this check based on a percentage of their sales back every month, and it's extremely profitable. You can see the attractions from the other end as well because they've got these massive marketing budgets, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, you you, you get great exposure if you're running one of these outlets. Yeah, you do, and and the, the, there are people who make. A fabulous living. It's hard work, but yeah. they, they they make great returns from them. 
what's happening now, in, I think, in Domino's, that some of those franchisees are thinking perhaps things are not as good as they used to be and we can see them getting a little bit worse. This is a story that's definitely got more legs in it, I think. Saturation point. Yeah. Saturation point. Well, there, there is one area of the economy where demand is uh, fairly constant and unyielding, and that's... Uh, and that's dignity, funeral services as well. They reported earlier on this week. I was surprised to look, because I've never covered them before, Harriet Russell does, uh, the amount of debt they have on their books. But it's in the, it's in the form of uh, long-term uh, bonds, I think. Yeah. So, you know. this, is, this is a company that has been owned by private equity before. So yes. the leverage and the debt is part and parcel of it. But the logic is is, is, is that, Funerals are, you know... Should it be a public company, then? <laughs> I don't see any reason why not. Um, but it is... I mean, the logic for it is is that it's a very predictable market. Sadly, yes. sadly we all die one day. And whilst the, the number of, of funerals jumps up and down, it is, it is a fairly predictable business, so that the... The cash flows, the revenues and the cash flows that come from it, probably the argument is that they can support debt financing probably a lot better than a lot of other businesses can but this is a business that's running again run into run into a few problems i mean funerals are are eye-wateringly expensive and um, i I had a good look at this company a couple of years ago and was shocked to see how for want of a better word aggressive dignity had been in raising its prices you know, sort of mid-single-digit percentages year after year after year. And, um, you know, it's make, it was making... Well, you, you've got your customer base at a low point there. Yeah, as well. but then again, that's, that's, that's one of the criticisms. You know, is this a company that, you know, has exploited people in a difficult position? And, yeah. it's, and it was making, you know, low 30% profit margins. Mm. And one of the... Got one of the sort of golden rules of economics is that high profits tend to attract competition, and dignity has attracted competition, but it's also attracted the eyes of the Competition and Markets Authority and and the government, who are looking into not only the funeral market but also the the big market for prepaid funerals, of which dignity is a is a very large player, and. The long and short of it is that Dignity is having to cut its prices. Okay. And, you know, if you looked at the results this week, um, it had a 3% fall in revenue. Uh, Even though the number of funerals they performed went up, the revenue per funeral came down. They had a lot of fixed costs, like a 3% fall in revenue. Saw a, I think from memory, uh, about a 20, just short of 25% fall in profits and a 33% fall in earnings per share. So you can see how geared this is. Yeah. So you've got what's known as operational gearing through the fixed cost, and then you've got the debt, which you mentioned earlier. And when you get a situation where the sales are coming down... It reverses. It reverses, and it's probably not finished yet. I mean, if you look at analyst forecasts for this, so we're, what, making 33% profit margins two years ago, 33, 25 last... Forecaster for twenty percent margins. This is a company that whose profits are still probably going to keep going down for a bit. 
Okay. Well, the, the CMA and the government are looking into this moment. The, uh, the inquiry uh, will take a couple, up to a couple of years. So I think we'll hear something this year. Okay. What sort of legislative or regulatory changes could be brought in as a result? Well, funerals for a start aren't regulated. Okay. And I think a lot of, a lot of people are actually quite surprised about that. There must that. be some sort of emissions uh, regulation. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. I think that, you know, Dignity are actually trying to say that regulation, any regulation is actually a good thing for them because it keeps competition at bay. I think the issue will be whether there's been some sort of abuse of market position in terms of pricing, and then looking at the funding. Could there be collusion in the market? Because you would think there'd be a lot of uh, private uh, funeral directors out there, and I'm not quite sure what percentage Dignity has of the market. I mean, uh, Dignity is about sort of 12% of the market. And are there any other big co-op's players? Co-op's a big one. Co-op, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. co-op's a big one. I mean... You've got a few big providers, and it's actually quite fragmented. So yeah. one, one of the things that Dignity's done over the years is gone and bought up. You know, it, tra- it doesn't trade as Dignity; it trades as you know, John Smith and Son. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, funeral directors. But um, yeah, this is also obviously we don't know what's going to happen. If you're an investor in this, you've got the price cutting, and then you've got the government and the, and the competition authorities looking at it. It's um, it's probably going to keep keep buying interest away from the shares these shares for a while, even though they are trading. I forget what they're trading on now. I think they're sort of ten times earnings, or maybe even less. Yeah, ostensibly not that demanding, but, but there's a reason for that. Yeah, yeah, it's cheap, but it's yeah, it's cheap, cheap for a reason. reason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean that debt. When you look at the the terms, I, I can't remember what it was this year, but uh, uh, this week rather. But uh, it's long term debt. But that that becomes an issue after a while if if uh, pre pre tax and earnings keep on going down and cash flows at the same yeah, time. Obviously. And if you have to refinance it, yes, yeah, it's, it's you know you, what what you don't want in a declining profit business is lots of debt. Uh, lots of debt indeed. Okay, we the, what else do we have this week as well? Morrison's. You looked at the at William Morrison, yeah, and, and what's going on there? They're doing all right actually. In in what's a a pretty pretty nasty sector to try and make money in um i mean these guys are making you know the say almost similar margins to car dealerships yeah you know a couple of pence in the pound profit here and uh, you know readers and, and listeners will be familiar with uh, how cutthroat this this market is with the, the likes of aldi and little online shopping uh you've got sainsbury's and asda who are really struggling trying to get together to help themselves out. But Morrison's and Tesco are... There's probably a very similar story going on here, is that they are... They seem to be reconnecting with their customers. They seem to be running their businesses well, getting the cost down, getting more efficient. They're not wasting a lot of money opening new supermarkets and are sweating their assets quite nicely and throwing off lots of cash. And that cash is coming back to shareholders. So Morrison's is... I think Morrison's and Tesco are actually two quite interesting income stocks. And Morrison's um, paid a special dividend of four pence a share last year. And it's paid a special dividend of six pence a share this year, as well as raising the uh, annual dividend by, by just under 10%. And it looks well set to keep on doing this. And I th- you know, I looked at, the, looked at the sort of forecast and think, you know, in a couple of years' time, this uh, the current share price. This is a this is a share that's um, going to be yielding about four and a half percent. 
which for any income seekers out there is one that might be interesting. But there seems to be, you know, when you're looking at income shares, you've always got to look at the business that's producing the income rather than just being sucked in by by numbers. And I think the story at Morrison's is still pretty good. Um, they're doing very well uh, from wholesaling because yeah. they've got they've got their own food business. That's they, right. That was part of the business that's really expanded. Yeah, probably. and they've been they've been supplying um, McCall's. Is it? Yeah, McCall's? there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of um, uncertainty about that during the week, but that seems to have been cleared up. But uh, Amazon is one of the big ones. Oh yes. So of the Amazon Fresh business is sourcing a large amount of their, the fresh food from Morrison's. Or if you're driving to a garage forecourt. You, yeah, you can... garages. Um, yeah, they're either Morrison's garages, and I forget the name of the of the garage company that they um, are supplying, but yes. So that business is doing about 700 million of sales. They think it's going to get to a billion pretty quickly. Yeah. So it becomes a decent source of sales growth and probably a bit of margin expansion as well. Yeah. So I think the story there is pretty good. This this is a company that's run very well. It seems to be in tune with its customers. It's not excessively indebted. Not the most exciting or profitable of industries, but I think the cash generation story there is pretty good stuff. What was the chain that it bought down south? Uh, it bought it, Safeway, Safeway about 15 years ago. Yeah, now. which was a bit of a, a bad move at the time. It took, took them a long time to sort that out. You couldn't find more contrasting stores as well because I've obviously been, I remember when I was uh, living up north and you go in there and, the, and they, were, they were ahead of everyone else in terms of the shopping experience and to come down and buy a, a chain that was fairly down down at heel, I would have thought. I mean, Safeway was, I, I think the, the truth of, I mean, I, looked, I remember looking at Safeway 15, 16 years ago when Morrison's bought it and... And I think they quickly found out that it actually wasn't making any money. Yeah. And uh, in strange positions on the high street as well. Yeah, they time. weren't in very good locations. Yeah. So one of the problems was that they were, were not getting the, the footfalls and the shoppers and the basket size yeah. to make good money. And I think Morrison's was perhaps a little bit too confident that it could turn that business around. But eventually it did get to grips with it and actually got it in a reasonable position before they then started messing around with it again. Yeah, well, they are, <laughs> And they seem to be on a decent footing again now. Well, that's interesting. Uh, our readers should perhaps take a look at them from an income perspective as well. And you said uh, Tesco's... Uh, I see Tesco and Morrison's as a very similar income theme. OK. Obviously, Tesco's with Booker and, again, just sorting themselves out. They're very similar stories in terms of cash flow, growing cash flow, rebuilding margin instead of putting that money into bricks and mortar which isn't making them much they're going to give it back to shareholders yeah. in, in rising dividends and i think that's that's quite an interesting story okay then uh, the last company that we'll cover for this week Fortera was uh, a brick manufacturer. I can only think of, oh, Micklemersh and uh, Ibs- Ibstock. Ibstock, yeah, they're the main three. The main three as well. So what do we think about this week's announcement? Yeah, I, li- I like this business yep. for quite a few reasons. They are quite scarce assets in that they are they own um, the large reserves of clay which go into making bricks, and therefore it's very difficult for someone else to come along and compete with them if you haven't got that base raw material. And um, the brick market looks to be supported by some very quite you know very nice fundamentals at the moment. Yes, I think I think our readers and listeners will 
be pretty familiar with the the new build housing market and how uh, the amount of houses being built as being built has has gone up quite nicely, and that is definitely benefiting for Terra. That's that's obviously increasing demand for bricks. Um, the other interesting part of this business is about thirty percent of its sales. So about two thirds of its sales come from new build, and about thirty percent of its sales come from repairs and maintenance, uh, extensions, repairs, that kind of thing. And they have. Um, sort of London brick, Fletton bricks, which are quite famous. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, that that business is very, very tends to be very steady. Yep. Um, so they've got they've got a good uh, a good foothold in that market as well. And then you have the fact that the supply of bricks, the stocks of bricks in the UK market is actually very, very low. So we've got high demand, low stocks, and that's feeding through quite nicely into the demand and, and brick pricing. And you feed it through to a, a business like Fortero, which is now making very, very good money. You know, its profit margins are are nearly 20%, and it generates extremely good cash flows. Um, it's investing in, in more brick-making brick capacity, which is, again, another positive, because what we've seen over the last few years is that... Uh, House builders have been bringing in bricks from abroad, from places like Belgium, and so Which reduces margins. Yeah. yeah. So, you, but you've got an import substitution story here. Yeah. So you get you make the bricks in the UK, and instead of bringing them in from from overseas, and that's an extra source of demand. And Fortera had a pretty difficult year last year. It bought um, a precast concrete business, as it makes um, concrete slabs as well as bricks and tiles, and that was a bit messy in terms of um in terms of getting that to to make money and they seem to have sorted that out now so that drag that they had last year uh, is going to start to get more favorable this year uh, you got stock here on on 10 times earnings um very cash generative good returns on investment a lot of quality hallmarks yes it's cyclical but the new build market is underpinned now for what probably for the next two or three years at least. And the long-term demographic as well. Yeah, we need to build more houses. Yeah. And I think they are a less risky play uh, on the on the market than, say, the house builders are, yeah. which are probably attracting uh, a lot of perhaps adverse public attention in terms of how profitable they are. And, of course, they are less, they are heavily geared to changes in house prices, whereas... The cost of the bricks is about 1% of the selling cost of a house. I think we had this as one of our tips for the year. Yeah. Uh, it's done quite well. I think it I think probably continue to do quite well. Oh, excellent. Well, there we are, you see. There we are. We've uh, talked about uh, dominoes today and uh, saturation in the market there, some good income possibilities with uh, Tesco and Morrison's. And uh, good, uh, well-performing brick stock there too. Phil is also talking about water companies, or specifically their dividends in this week's uh, magazine as well. Any quick comment on that? Because uh, are you just uh, is that is that a leverage story again? No, I think what what I've done is I've tried to get beneath the first impressions of water companies, where they look heavily indebted, their dividends aren't well covered, and I've just tends to look at a couple of techniques that investors can do to try and get beneath the actual underlying cash performance of uh, 
of water companies and actually prove that these businesses are doing quite nicely, but obviously they get there regulated and they have to go through this five-year regulatory uncertainty as to how much they can keep charging charging their customers and how much profit they can make. And then I've got a bit at the end which um, sort of sheds a few lights on how to value the dividends and um, how some of the city analysts might want to look at um, look at the valuation of water companies. Hopefully uh, an interesting piece for people. No doubt, no doubt. Well, and beyond that as well, we've got uh, Simon Thompson's regular comments. He's looking at uh, Pennant this week along with Gresham House. There's an article in there from me when I'm uh, looking at intangibles and the, the increased risk because of uh, our transition to the knowledge economy. But anyway, thanks very much, Phil, again, and uh, we'll look forward to... Uh, Next week's podcast. Until then, goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.